to part two of the mini-series, Vaping, as portrayed in the media, the facts and the myths. This mini-series is sponsored by the Respiratory Structure and Function Assembly in association with the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly and the Tobacco Action Committee of the ATS. We are excited to be speaking with Dr. Ann Meltzer from University of Minnesota and the VA. Let's jump right into the burning questions that we have that are yet to be answered. Tobacco companies, you mentioned, do have a stake in vaping. So I understand they are able to advertise for vaping, and how do they get away with that? It's, again, um, kind of like e-cigarettes having to be deemed to be a tobacco product before the FDA could could regulate them. Um, E-cigarettes are not currently included in our um, tobacco marketing laws. And so there's just a a loophole that allows um, e-cigarette companies to market um, their their products in areas that that cigarette companies have been banned from marketing for 50 years. Um, And that primarily means the radio and television advertising uh, the bulk of e-cigarette advertising has been online. It's been through social media. Um, Juul uh, is known for having recruited uh, Instagram influencers to to market their product in in that kind of um, that kind of format. And so, the up till now, um, they they've been pretty much free to to do as they liked. However they are getting cracked down on finally because you're not supposed to make unfounded health claims uh, in those venues. Uh, And almost all e-cigarette advertising is based around uh, the safety profile and the cessation benefits. And there's not that much data supporting the cessation benefits. And of course, there's uh, an explosion of data uh, supporting that there are unknown health consequences. Uh, and so that is one way that um, we are starting to be able to restrict some of the advertising, but but for now they're they're free to to advertise in those venues. So on that same, you know, um, thought, is there a legal age then for vaping? Uh, theoretically, <laughs> they should be regulated similar to cigarettes, but um, in fact, there were a lot of holes in that um, regulation uh, until recently. And a lot of uh, age limitations on cigarette sales are based on state and local uh, legislation. So state and regional Tobacco 21 laws and and different uh, state and regional laws controlling where these products can be sold. Um, And so theoretically, e-cigarettes should be covered uh, under existing rules, but um, it has been historically very easy for teens to to gain access to them, in part because of a very robust online marketing uh, where they can be bought on eBay, they can be bought on uh, various uh, other platforms, uh, secondhand and new, and, and so it's been very difficult to get a hold on access. So do you think the situation will get better um, before it gets worse? Or do you think, it, you know, um, yeah, so basically do you think they'll be able to control it um, sooner than things getting worse before they get better? So my this, this will be my personal opinion, and I think things will continue to get worse before they get 
better. Um, and and one of the reasons I say that is we're we've just gotten some of the first information from the 2019 National Youth Tobacco Survey, which just shows that the number of youth using these devices is going up and up and up. So in 2010, it was like one and a half percent had ever used an e-cigarette. Um, by 2017, it had gone up to the teens. It went up 78 percent from 2018 to, to excuse me from 2017 to 2018. Up to one in five high school students had used an e-cigarette in the last 30 days, and it went up another eight percent from from 2018 to 2019. And even once the FDA has completed the regulatory process. Uh, even once we have uh, better product standards and more public awareness, these devices are out there. There's millions of them uh, available. They're so heavily marketed online. There's already a huge underground market for THC-containing e-liquids, uh, for cheaper, you know, liquids that were manufactured in, in other countries, um, that actually enforcing those product standards is going to be very, very difficult anywhere except in brick-and-mortar stores. And I think the, the purchasing will just shift to online. So that's really insightful. Thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge. Um, I, I did want to ask you if you had any you know, final thoughts um, on the topic or something related to it that we didn't get to cover? Yeah, I think um, a few kind of last takeaway points are how important it, it is, especially as uh, pulmonologists, to start paying a lot more attention to, to taking a good e-cigarette history um, because in addition to identifying potential cases who are already ill, um, I think it's important that we counsel our patients about the unknown risks of e-cigarettes, the risks of the flavorings. Um, and, you know, if they refuse to stop vaping, counsel them about the symptoms that might indicate that they have uh, vaping-induced lung injury. And I think we need to pressure health systems to improve electronic health record reporting um, of e-cigarette use. The other last point I would make is we talk a lot in the media about youth use, and obviously youth use is one of the things we're the most concerned about, um, but adults are using these products too. And the pattern of use in adult users, most of whom have taken up vaping as a way to quit smoking, is very different. And most adult users are also smoking. So they may only report to you that they're smoking, but they're also vaping. And we're getting progressively more information that dual use, so smoking, cigarettes, and vaping, is the norm for adult uh, users of e-cigarettes. So in the PATH study, which is a giant study kind of trying to answer this question, 70% of adult users smoke cigarettes and vape at the same time. And when we look at those dual users, they measure even higher than a cigarette smoker on biomarkers of, of harm for tobacco-related diseases. And they have an even higher rate of heart attacks and strokes uh, compared to smokers and, uh, and non-smokers and people who just use e-cigarettes. And so I would uh, 
encourage everyone to really add uh, e-cigarette history uh, to every patient assessment and, and encourage other providers to do so uh, so that we can counsel patients against the harms of, of using these devices along with combustible tobacco. Thank you so much for your final thoughts on this because I, I think it's very helpful um, both as a researcher or as a physician or a student or whatever one may be or just the general public to see it slightly differently than just sort of the superficial end result of what's, not superficial, I should say, but the end result of what's happening, which is harm, but um, not really understanding, you know, that it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. I think we we in the tobacco control community, uh, there has always been a lot of um, different views on the benefits and harms of e-cigarettes, you know, balancing the potential benefits for helping long-term smokers who've tried other ways to quit to quit, um, in which maybe there is a role um, for e-cigarettes, you know, weighed against the unknown and really currently unquantifiable harms of a whole generation of youth uh, becoming addicted to nicotine and using these untested uh, products with unknown long-term consequences. Right. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, That was really, really great for all of us.